Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. This is part two of the Hidden Gems and Unsung Masterpieces series with Soda Jerker Simon Barber and Brian O'Connor. As a recap in part one, we discussed the songs No Reply, I'm Looking Through You, Your Mother Should Know, Photograph, Dear Boy, and Daytime Nighttime Suffering. In this episode, we'll discuss seven more songs. To set the stage where we're picking up, as we're about to jump into the next song, I noticed Simon's rather considerable guitar collection look at look at your room it's so incredible yeah i know it's crazy it comes up to here the guitars there's more than you you can see that's pretty cool it's stupid but um (laughs) hey everybody's got a thing yeah (laughs) everybody's got a thing i you should see my wardrobe like this is not reflective of i'm it's ridiculous it's like where am i going with all these sequence tops (laughs) you know but brian do you have the same kind of thing uh, no, I've got I, a lot of sequin tops, haven't you? <laughs> yes, actually, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I've got a few guitars, but I'm not a collector. Like so I do collect, I collect, you know, records and books and things, but I don't collect instruments so much because mm. I feel bad when I don't play them. So I've just got a couple that I use, and there's a couple that are sitting in cases in the front room. I actually picked up most of these today, which I feel good about. Just to, to, did you play them all? Like just like hi, yeah. hi, I'm here. Yeah, just saying aloud. That actually connects to what Paul said. Remember in his album, Egypt Station, there was a song about Confidant? Confidant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, And the same thing, like he felt badly. Yeah, yeah. No, old friends. Friends, oh, cute. <laughs> All right, so let's jump in. The next song is from Brian's list. It is, I Want to Tell You. Yes, um, a George song, one of um, George's three on Revolver, the last of the three. Yeah, yeah, it's one of my favourite George songs. Um, I think it almost sort of, I feel like it captures George's personality quite well. Totally. This song, Absolutely. it sort of captures all sides of him. The, the yeah. kind of the sort of sensitive side, the the more sort of cynical side the frustrated side it's all kind of in there there's a spiritual element to it there's a there's maybe a a slight kind of drug element to it as well i think it is maybe 
LSD inspired this one. Mm, mm. And just musically, it's um, it's got all the things in there that you kind of look for in the George song. The melody takes sort of interesting twists and turns. He stretches the melody beyond like the breaking point, really. There's the sort of uneven bars. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nice chords, nice kind of dissonances in the chords and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, there's just so much to enjoy. You know, we've got that great opening riff, which is not dissimilar to Paperback Writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A similar kind of tonality to that. Um, but doesn't really who's play, like. Who's playing that? Who's playing that? Do you know? I th- that sounds like George to me. Um, but yeah, it doesn't sound so much like Paul to me playing that one. I think Paul's, it's got to be Paul on the piano on this, mm. I would say. Um, Paul's contributions to this, incidentally, are fabulous. But um, yeah, I think uh, George, I've, I found a quote where George said this was about, uh, and I quote, the avalanche of thoughts that are so hard to write down or say. So that's kind of where the song stems from. And, and the music very much reflects that, those sorts of tensions, yes. um, that that really kind of dissonant piano mm-hmm. thing in, in, in the verse, which when I first heard it kind of knocked me sideways, really, it just sounded so odd. Because this, yeah. well, Revolver was one of the last Beatles albums I actually got round to hearing. Um, wow, and, that's uh, crazy. Yeah, I mean, this is a long time ago now, but in the, the that context, it was the mm-hmm. it was the one of the last ones that and Beatles for Sale. So the songs on both those albums still sound kind of new to me in a weird way. Fresh. Even though it's like twenty five <laughs> years since I actually heard them. All. Um, and and that one in particular was like, wow, I don't. I, didn't feel like I'd quite heard anything like that in any of the other the other songs I'd heard, and yeah, it really captures the sort of frustration that uh, George is talking about that sort of dissonant piano and the tension in there, and you've yeah, got so much absolutely. to say but you can't get it out. And there's little moments of relief in the music when you yeah. like switch to a major chord and yeah. it'll open out a little bit, and then it'll be back into that tight kind of dissonant thing. Um, as I say, Paul really enhances the song with his harmonies um his piano playing there's a great moment on the uh on the fade out i find revolver is an album of great fade outs nearly every song yeah, something, fa- something fabulous <laughs> happens and like oh no wait hang on I'm, you know um because there's the end of that there's the end of uh, like tomorrow never knows there's mm-hmm. that great kind of honky tonk piano comes in mm-hmm. just as it fades out and mm-hmm. all manner of Leave things you on- wanting more yeah, well, it does. It's, yeah. it's great that yeah, way. Yeah. A lot of the, the Beach Boys songs of that era, recordings of mm. that era, do a similar thing. Um, but at the end of I Want to Tell You, you've got those great a cappella harmonies with yeah. uh, with Paul doing um, yeah. that sort of melisma over the sustained notes, that Indian-style melisma. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it is amazing, you're right. Yeah, which is a great... Well, Paul's second Indian-flavoured moment on that album yes, as well, yes. if you count the uh, the Taxman solo. Yeah. Um, I guess it's another way that Paul just... He, cut, he cottoned on to what George was getting into and was like, oh, okay, what's this? And sort of t- took things from it that he deployed in his own I stuff, love those touches. You know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so cool. Yeah, I don't know what you guys think of it. 
No, I'm all about that dissonance on the piano. I just absolutely <laughs> love that. I know what you mean. Like when you first hear it, it's quite jarring. But then the more you hear the song, you just can't be without it. Almost like it you needed to works. You needed to go to that point to that yep. extreme. Yeah, and I think it does, as you said, it captures George perfectly and and his complexity. A line like um, "The games begin to drag me down." Yeah. Almost sort of speaks to like how he was in Get Back. Almost, you know, it's um, it's it's that sort of like sense of himself. He really knows himself, I think, and and this song captures the, like his complexity. I actually yeah. read that this was the first track that where McCartney played bass after they'd recorded the rhythm track, which maybe says something about the way it is. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that, actually. Yeah, I knew he started to kind of do that around Revolver and Pepper and stuff. He started to put the bass on last. Yeah, it became commonplace after this one, I believe. So, also, the, yeah. the groove on this one, actually, is is sort of the first instance of... of it, it's, it's what's probably now considered a, a typical Beatles groove, that kind of ploddy ding, ding, jing, a jing, a jing, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I'm not sure there's an inst- uh, uh, an instance of it prior to I want to tell you. After that, you've got Penny Lane, you've got um, With a Little Help From My Friends and, and other mm-hmm. examples, um, A Day in the Life, Paul's section of A Day in the Life, but that sort of feel... Is that feel, all coming from Paul? Is that all coming from Paul, do you think? It, it, it feels like a Paul thing, uh, uh, maybe a Ringo thing, maybe just the way mm-hmm. Ringo tackles mm-hmm. that particular song he gives it out his own kind of lolloping feel um mm-hmm. i love ringo's playing on this i mean i always love ringo's playing on everything yeah. basically but um yeah he really drives the song well i love the brightness it just it's just a great production the brightness of the piano and the uh, you've got the riff at the beginning and then when those chords come in it's just like a ray of sunshine when those mm-hmm. you know those big major chords um yeah, I think this, sure I think this was um, also the first time that George had more than two songs on a record. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So maybe maybe the the new feel is something that he was experimenting with. I don't know. Yeah, you can hear him. Um, you can really hear him developing as a songwriter with this one. I think. Yeah, mm. I think he liked this song, didn't he? He continued to play this one on tour into the nineties. I think. Oh yeah, when he did yeah. the um, Japan tour. Yeah. To me, this is kind of like, you know, the, how there's four or I guess five major tastes. There's like sweetness, sourness, saltiness, bitterness, savory. Like, it's interesting that George brings in a particular flavor that adds range and depth to the Beauty mm-hmm. Beetle. So on this album, you know, that's so bright and it's got the sadness of, you know, Eleanor Rigby and Good Day Sunshine and the coolness of Tomorrow Never Knows. It's kind of like, George brings in this particular taste, this dissonance, this awkwardness. Like George is uh, George's personality. It's just like it adds such dimension to the Beatles. It does, it, yeah. It makes the album deeper, you know, and it it just feels so good when you get to this this song, you know, because it's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. As I say, it's got all of George's qualities kind of rolled yeah. into one. This song, whereas something like Taxman is more his sardonic side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Love You Too is, is is obviously, you know, the, the Indian influence coming in, coming mm-hmm. on strong. Um, whereas this song's got all, just lots of, it, 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 it sort of contains multitudes, this song yeah. for me. Yeah, it's got his awkwardness, but it kind of makes his awkwardness into a strength. Yeah. You know, like, like you said, his lyrics kind of extend and it's awkward, but it makes, it's charming. 
Is there any reason you think it has to do with acid? I, well, I, I think I read it, to be honest. Okay, yeah, yeah, um, it's yeah. not so much an, an interpretation as, as something I, I saw, but um, yeah, it's just the, the old the notion of my head is filled with things to, to say. It's yes. like, you know, his mind's being expanded and there's, yes. there's, so suddenly having all these uh, epiphanies, and you yeah. know, but they're all just colliding together and he can't kind of get them out um, right. articulately, um, if that makes sense. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly sounds like an acid trip where you're trying to like, I've, I've figured out the world and I exactly. can't quite communicate it. Yeah. 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 Um, I remember in an article, I, I think it was the Maureen Cleave article, uh, you know, George says that Patty says that she wishes he would write more beautiful lyrics. Do you remember mm. this from the Maureen? I don't Cleave? think I've read that actually. Oh, it's incredible. All of those interviews are incredible. Highly recommend them. Mm-hmm. Um, and um you know, he says, well, you know, Patty wishes that I'd write more beautiful lyrics. That, that's a paraphrase. And that's around the time of this. And he does, you know, he does move into that direction. But I love these lyrics because they aren't necessarily beautiful. They're not here, there and everywhere. Mm-hmm. But they're, they capture something so incredibly well that it doesn't matter if they're beautiful. They're interesting. They're real, yeah. you know. Simon, do you have anything else to say about this? No, I think that's covered it, really. (laughs) Well, that's certainly everything I know about that song. (laughs) So the next song is from your list, Simon, and it is This Never Happened Before. Why did you choose this one? Um, well, I mean, I did want to get one in that I thought was a good showcase for Paul's melodic gift. Mm-hmm. Not that previous choices haven't been, but this is just one of those ones that's kind of buried late in one of his solo albums. It's on Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. And, Incredible I mean, album. Yeah, is. well, and that's one of the reasons I chose this song is because, I mean, that it, it is on an album alongside other really good songs like Jenny Wren or At The Mercy. Or, At The Mercy is insane. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're beautiful songs, but I chose this one because I just think if you gave 100 songwriters this chord sequence... 99 times out of 100 you're not getting this melody back you know mm-hmm. but he just has that ability to just pluck out the the choices the the notes against the chords that make it distinctive and special and he just drains every possible drop of melody from this i think it's uh, it's kind of incredible it's well it's a gift he's got isn't it to be able to choose the most impactful things from any given chord sequence and then he sort of resolves it in the uh, the second section which is a bit more um, a bit less dramatic I suppose than the verses but Mm. um, yeah it's um, 
it's just a beautiful song and I guess people would probably think well why do you need another lovey-dovey piano ballad from Paul but I think people do like what? this song you yeah. know I, I, like out for example I went on Spotify that sort mm-hmm. of wretched hive of scum and villainy that is Spotify and um, <laughs> and the highest streaming numbers for any track on that album are for this song Interesting. Oh, right. So okay. seven and a half million streams of this one, and the closest one to it is Jenny Wren with six million. Oh, I would have thought Fine Line might have been. Um, no, so that I, was think, a I think stuff. people love this song. That's my argument. I think people love this, but it's a bit of a secret that we're all listening to it. It is very <laughs> classic, like a classic, well-written song. Brian, what what have you got to say about this song? Yes, I, I love this. I adore Chaos and Creation. Generally, I think it's mm-hmm. it's just it, it, of Paul's latter albums, of Paul's twenty first century albums. It's by far the best. It's so strong. So Agreed. And, you know, Nigel Godrich's approach to the production. You know, to have Paul pretty much do most things to sort of oust his band mm-hmm. and just get Paul to do what Paul does best um, and challenge him. You know, really mm-hmm. challenge him sort of creatively mm-hmm. and uh, just pay dividends. It's just such yeah. a Great record. I had it on the way home. In fact, uh, I was at Size last summer, and um, we live in different cities. So I was driving home. It's about an hour and a half, and I stuck Chaos and Creation on for the first time in a while. And just, it's just every song, just so um, they're just cast iron. Just crafted so well, you know. um, Nothing's wasted. Nothing kind of outstays its welcome. Really on it. Um, It's kind of downbeat in certain. Ways there's only a couple of really up tempo songs mm-hmm. on there, fine line, and uh, mm-hmm. what's the other one? Uh, Promised you girl, because mm-hmm. um, it's generally quite an introspective, slow, stately album. Mm-hmm. Um, State- which is stately unusual. Stately is a great word for this song, even you know. Yeah, well, and that's this song. Yeah, to get back to this song, um, I think did sorry, didn't we name check this song to Paul when we in- we interviewed him? I think you we brought may- it up. Yeah, I think I probably did, yeah. Not in depth, and his face did sort of uh, light up a bit, as I remember, like, oh, <laughs> oh, you mentioned that one, okay. Like, you know, that one doesn't come up so often. We didn't go into depth on it, we didn't have time, but... Um, I think I yeah. might have, yeah, we did talk about chaos, and I might have mentioned it as an example of melody writing, yeah. Yeah, because I think, I think Paul's later career has ushered in this era of sort of... You know, he was always good at a piano ballad, but there's a certain kind of Paul piano ballad that seems to have been ushered in with Chaos and Creation. Like, this never happened before anyway from that same album, yeah. which I think is another great track. Um, something like I Don't Know from Egypt Station. Mm, so good, um, yeah. The End of the End, you know, just... Uh, I don't know, they have a certain quality to them because he's older now and there's a more of a fragility... Um, in his voice, perhaps, or um, but they don't sound like the Paul ballads of old. There's some other, there's some different, there's some otherness to them. I can't quite put my finger on, but I well, love, um, I love it. Yeah, there's a, a bit of a melancholy to to those mm. songs, and they're more than there might have been. That's what I get from this song too. Actually, is that you know it, it sounds like it's an adult talking. It's romantic. But it's just not like crazy, optimistic, romantic. There is a realism to it, like an authenticity. You f- you feel that Paul feels this song. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very genuine. There's a depth to it, I guess. And 
I assume this was probably written for Heather Mills. She was an interesting muse to him because I suspect, I think we can probably all conclude that their relationship was difficult <laughs> and challenging. And, you know, you get that in a lot of his work from this period. It feels like he's always trying to reconcile with her or whoever he's talking to. Like, it's it's not so good to be on your own. It's good for us to be. This is special, you know, and it is romantic. Um but it isn't easy. And I can't imagine that anybody's sitting there going, we don't need another good piano ballad from Paul McCartney. Whoever those people are, <laughs> like, just go listen to some other stuff. My God, I, I'd happily usher in another hundred years of Paul McCartney's piano ballads. Yeah. You know? I remember there wasn't there a story told around the time of the album coming out as well that um, he, he used to get, like, massages uh <laughs> and, and and the masseuse it was getting one. married i think yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and he played and he i mean i like to think it's true and he wasn't just making this up but he said he, he had like a cassette of that a demo a cassette like a rough cassette of that yeah. song or a cd or whatever and he played it to the masseuse yeah and she loved it, it. Like it was paul. like oh yeah sounds like paul he seems well, to that's like, what you like do, don't you? when you when you yeah, want to yeah. a song you buy someone you, you play yeah. it to your masseuse and uh, <laughs> and yeah, and she was getting married and loved the song, and she asked, "Oh, can I have? Can we use this for our first dance when we get married?" And he agreed mm-hmm. to it. Um, I want to find this person and, and corroborate this story because it's a lovely story if it's if it's true. I believe it. I, I believe. believe it. I don't see why yeah. he make it. Paul's not. He's not a liar. No. Um. So yeah, that sticks in my head about that song as well. But yeah, it, it's just um. Oh, another great ballad, sort of post-2000, is Your Loving Flame as well. That's another great later mm-hmm. period Paul ballad. Another Heather, Heather Mill song, and probably. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. It, it was a tumultuous period, but out of out of that turmoil came some some good stuff. I think yeah. the, the difference between something like Drive and Rain and uh, Chaos and Creation is that producer control, though, isn't yeah. it? Like the, the, the imprint of Nigel, Nigel Godrich really makes itself known on um, Chaos. Absolutely. And it's just so much more the focused album and so much better for it. Yeah, definitely. Nigel Godrich isn't letting Rinse the Rain drops through, is he? <laughs> Certainly not in its 10-minute form. <laughs> um, you know, well, you know, there was a lot of tension between them, wasn't there? Paul and Nigel. Yeah, I think um, they really respected each other. And I think Paul grudgingly did respect him for that. Um, I think didn't he say to Nigel Godfrey, "You need to work on your bedside manner." That's right. And, <laughs> yeah. and 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 Nigel was kind of like, "Well, he he was surprised that Paul needed it." You know, I remember one one anecdote about <laughs> Nigel saying something really kind of mean about a song right before Paul was going to record the bass line for it, and Paul was just like, "Now you've ruined it. I can't record this yeah. today." And, and being surprised that, like Paul McCartney, you would, you know, I would think that you'd be Teflon, and it, uh, that's interesting and instructive. How mm-hmm. he's just, he's an artist, you know, he's a very very sensitive artist. Yeah, I mean, you can understand that. And anyone who's ever created anything and had someone criticize it, you know, you do bristle, and he's, yeah. he's no different. And um, but yeah, I think I think there were a few songs he presented for that album that because um, I think Memory Almost Full, he'd actually recorded some of that. Mm-hmm, prior mm-hmm. to Chaos and Creation. Mm-hmm. And then he had some songs that maybe ended up on that album that he wanted to but Nigel Godrich, did, Godrich didn't like them. So um, they ended up on Memory Almost Full instead, which was done with the same producer from um, Drive and Rain, Rain, I think David Kahn. Yeah. Mm. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know what I get about um, Chaos and Creation is, first of all, it takes a while to reveal itself. 
I, you know, I remember having to listen to it a few times before really embracing it because, you know, I, I think it's probably less immediately available, but more satisfying in the long run. Yeah. And I think that Nigel, um, he allowed Paul to lean into a seriousness. Yeah. You know, I think uh, like a, um, you know, a melancholy, a seriousness that rarely shows up in Paul's albums. There's always Mm -hmm. a bit of a lightness. I think it's Paul's kind of almost toxic positivity of this, like, uh, I feel feelings, but I'm going to turn it into a positive, you know, and something like Vanity Fair, he, he talked about the fact that when he brought that, it was a faster song. He, you know, clearly that's a very meaningful song. I think that there's a lot of emotion behind that song, but he had made it fast. And, and I think that not Nigel, he and Nigel worked on it till it was very slow and it really had the devastating effect at that speed. And maybe Paul, wouldn't have gone there because it's hard. It's hard to be that emotional. Yeah. You know, that seems to be his, his way of doing things. His um, uh, inclination is to, even if it's a negative, he'll turn it into a positive sound like that tension. I think by his own admission, he's, he's, he's like that, you know, by nature, isn't he? But um, on that record, he, he, yeah, there's a vulnerability there. You know, there's the there's lighter moments. English Tea is a nice little sort of palate mm-hmm. cleanser in there, and mm-hmm. his last real kind of uh, granny music song, I guess, as well. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. um, but aside from that, it's quite heartfelt, vulnerable, and it, that's why it stands kind of head and shoulders above. I mean, I you know I can find something to like in any Paul record, but for me, it's yeah. that's what makes it superior to his other latter day albums is that honesty and vulnerability, that willingness to be sort of open emotionally yeah and you know what this was recorded at a time when paul was going through chaos i believe like this was really i I believe when paul's relationship was in absolute turmoil and nigel says that said that afterwards he didn't really know and you know that probably fed into their relationship too if paul is on the verge of getting divorced and he's not really talking about it. It's just a lot of heightened emotion. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure it was good for him to have a collaborator that made him channel these these feelings appropriately. So yeah, and and into his performances as well. His singing's great throughout that record. His playing's fabulous. Be it drums, bass, piano, guitar, everything he plays on there. Um, you know, you can hear he's he's sort of knowing that he was going through a quite a, a rough period, you can kind of hear it in the performances. He's, he's exercising some of that. Um, Why is know. that? I don't know, just the passion in the playing, I think. Uh, on stuff like Fine Line and uh, Promise to You Girl, just I was pounding things out on the piano. I was attacking the drums. and um, I don't know, there's just... And just the emotion in the singing. It, it, it's, it's, the singing sounds particularly sincere, on this, on that record, to, to my ears anyway, um, and I think maybe that that's him channeling some of the stuff he was going through at the time, you know. So I know he dismissed Paul's band because I think he wanted to uh, probably felt like he couldn't control Paul. If Paul's got all of his his team, Team Paul, just going mm-hmm. like, we agree with Paul. That's a great that's song, ex- or we like, that's exactly, you know? yeah. I think yeah, that was so- that was his, his, his. I mean, I you know, God love him for. For sticking to his guns, because he he made the right decision there. I think he, I, I remember him saying the problem with Paul's band was it was a bit of a boys' club, 
Mm. It was all, you know, bantering and knockabout kind of atmosphere. And he didn't necessarily want that. He wanted the focused Paul doing what he does best. So, you know, out with the band and let's get down to to work. And he was was 100% correct to do that. Right. It got to that emotional vulnerability that he probably wouldn't with a bunch of dudes that are, they're having a fun time. You know, probably would have been more fun. Yeah. It creates a different kind of album basically, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, Does him playing the instruments, like Paul's such an interesting musician. I've heard from somebody else who said that he loved it when Paul played the instruments because it had a different flavor. Mm. Do you think that's true? So I'd say so, yeah. I mean, we we've always been big fans of like one man band albums. Yeah. You know, Prince's early albums where you you know a Tim playing everything. And I suppose there's a certain sensibility that he brings to his playing, which when it's multiplied by multiple instruments, it's it's like Paul jamming with Paul and you, you get a real sense of his <laughs> yeah. his kind of internal clock, if you like, you know, like yeah. it, it's present in the drums, in the fills, in the guitar solos, in the bass playing. And we know, you know, that Paul knows how to write great bass lines, but when it's Paul underpinning also Paul, <laughs> yeah. it, you know, it's... Um, it's something special. I mean, it can be overdone slightly. I remember when he did uh, Young Boy years ago, and there was it was a really he did a video or something, didn't he, Brian? Was he on oh, TV? He was on a show was... called TFI Friday yeah. here in the UK, yeah, and he performed it live, but to a to a backing group of Pauls on TV screens behind them. So he'd he would he'd been filmed playing, you know, bass drums, yeah. and then he was stood out front, the real Paul playing guitar. And, um, he already I did remember, that with coming up. Well, he did. Yeah, yeah. Funnily yeah. enough, yeah, he did. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, it was yeah, it was a bit, it was a bit cheesy. Wasn't yeah, it? there's but, something uh, about that that sort of makes people go, "Oh God, you know, it's yeah, Paul yeah, yeah, trying yeah. to be everything." But yeah. Um, well, but John said just, that. John said that in the seventies, like, "Oh, he always wanted to do, you know, be everything in the band. Great, you know, yeah, Paul could yeah. just be a one man band, you know." Yeah, yeah, and he, he was the most complete musician in the in the group, wasn't he? I don't think any of them would have. Uh, disagreed with that yeah yep but then when you listen to the records of him playing everything you know it's just a great experience because he's so locked in with himself yeah. and his own sensibility <laughs> he's, he's that... got such a great sense of taste as well yeah in exactly. what he chooses to play yeah yeah okay well that fabulous song thank you for uh choosing that simon it uh was great to talk about chaos but i guess we've got to move onwards so the next song is a brian song it's i don't want to spoil the party I don't want to spoil the party, so I'll go. I would hate my disappointment to show. There's nothing for me here, so I will disappear. If she turns up while I'm gone, please let me know. I've had a drink or two and I don't care. There's no fun in what I do when she's not there. Why did you choose this song, Brian? Yeah, I just feel, well, as, as is our raison d'etre for this um, podcast, <laughs> yeah. it's just a super underrated song that doesn't get mm-hmm. um, mentioned enough, really. Uh, and it's also from their least appreciated album, I feel, Beatles for Sale. That's kind of undergone a bit of a reappraisal in recent years, I think. Yeah. Because uh, I think it's a fabulous record. I think I, I 
feel like it's maybe not held up in the same light as Hard Day's Night because of the amount of covers on there. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the original material on that record is, is so strong. Um, not yeah. a bad song amongst the, the originals. Um, and this one, yeah. Um, I, I was actually torn between talking about this or I'm a Loser. I couldn't decide which. Are they kind of companion songs in my yes. mind anyway? thematically, yes. Yeah, yeah, thematically, exactly. Both racked with self-doubt. Yes. Um, both in a, have that country, jaunty country feel, masking quite a, you know, downbeat lyric. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, it's, it's just... It's just so fun to listen to this song. It, 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 the... Um, this has a particularly great bridge on it. It's another song that doesn't really have a verse and chorus. It's it's a, it's another chorus, if, <laughs> if you like, you know, which they do quite a lot of when you go through the Beatles catalogue. There's a lot of, you know, not not specific choruses. The verse and the chorus are mm. one and the same. But in this one, the bridge when Paul's harmony comes in and just takes it to that other oh, place so is good. just so satisfying because it's John harmonising with himself, I think, on the on the verses, both mm-hmm. voices there sound like John. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's obviously very downbeat and, uh, and yeah, downbeat. And then, but when the, the bridge comes in, it's like those nice, you maybe said, I still love her. And the music takes, is elevated at that point and sounds more uplifting. Um, and uh, I like the little guitar interlude from George, which is, yeah, 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 me too. Yeah, so as is typical of George's early stuff on on the Beatles records, it's a bit clunky, but endearingly. I loved how no one so. could ever play in time on early 60s records. Yeah. <laughs> well, George in particular, right, I think. No, isn't it? They all sound like they picked up the guitar last week. Yeah. I think because it was still, I guess it was still in its infancy, wasn't it? Like electric guitar playing on. On pop records, of course, yeah. it, was only, it was a relatively new thing, and soloing on records and things was 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 quite a new thing. And, and George had to, I guess, like a lot of young musicians at the time, had to grow up on record. Mm-hmm. You know, he had mm-hmm. to when he, when the Beatles got their recording concert, he was what he was barely twenty, and yeah. uh, and still learning. Really, he'd only been playing since sort of mid to late fifties, and. Uh, and you can you can hear that you know some of the solos are a little bit stiff and awkward and and one of the most fascinating things about the Beatles catalog for me is hearing the is is the trajectory of George's guitar playing from the you know the early records to Abbey Road where he's just become this elegant yeah. majestic thoughtful guitar player who can really articulate and you know everything has just gone up several levels by the time you get to Abbey Road, you know. One of my favourite things about Abbey Road is George's playing on it throughout. Um, I love that word majestic, so true. Yeah, Abbey Road it, is majestic. That's it. And, and even then, even post-Beatles, you know, he hadn't really at that point gotten into the slide thing. And so he's, he's now considered kind of one of the great slide players, but he didn't really get to learn slide till, till the solo years. So mm. that was something. He was, always, he was always growing as a person, George. He was really begin to kind of uh, you know growing as a person as a musician and creatively and stuff but uh, yeah I'm going off on a tangent but um, yeah as I say the, the, lyrically in the same vein as, as No Reply it's, yes, it's unsettled so. and 
and paranoid and uh, kind of melancholy. So you're going to say it's Lennon being the alienated, spurned young man again, isn't it? Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. And kind of part of the problem is his own doing, you know, like he's the one that has made things infinitely worse. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But um, what else can I say about this one? Do you have any more? um, Roseanne Cash covered this song. Oh, did she do this one as well? I haven't heard a cover of this, but. I believe she covered this, and and we talked about her in regard to no reply as well. Didn't we? Yeah. She must just love Beatles for sale. <laughs> yeah, and this genre of John songs, probably. Maybe, yeah, yes, maybe. Yeah, she it's, a, it's a whole sub, it's a whole subcategory, I guess. Starting with uh, well, the Hard Day's Night has a has a couple in a similar. I'll cry instead. Is probably the most uh, the closest stylistically to to this one, and and sort of lyrically as well um and that whole country vibe you sort of had going think, on in 64 i think babies in black was one we talked about wasn't it mm-hmm. um in terms of like john and and the sort of attitude that you think of, that's not not quite above board that john but that's okay you just <laughs> you, do, you do you <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, I find all of these are so genuine in terms of the emotion that underpins these songs. Like these are genuinely felt and inspired mm-hmm. songs. And and there is this, like there is a theme among all of John's early Beatles work that, or among a lot of them, is that there is this, his object of desire is kind of cool and aloof and always wounding John. And then John is reacting and making things infinitely worse. And, you know, and then he's kind of kicking himself in May Pang's book. uh, You know, she talks about that, that that is John, you know, that John gets really upset and blows things up. I mean, look at the breakup. That's pretty well John in the breakup, blowing things up and then feeling contrite afterwards, like feeling so badly that he's done these things and just like, oh shit, what did I do? And, you know, it's just like, like we talked about with no reply, I always wonder who is this, (laughs) either he's chasing these very, very uh, cool women, um, or somebody really has John on a string, you know? Yeah, Norwegian Wood would be another example of that, I guess, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, I was thinking about this song, and John literally did spoil the party a year earlier. With Paul's birthday party. Oh yeah, with the Bob Willer incident. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is these are the kinds of things John does when he gets emotionally charged. You know, why was John so charged at that? Well, he had just come back, you know, from his trip with Brian. But also, I suspect, you know, Paul's the center of attention. He's got Jane there. You know, it's just like a difference in their worlds, and you know, this is just an inability for John to sort of emotionally regulate you know being a kind of macho liverpool guy yeah. of that particular time as well you know <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah but it makes for great music so that's uh mm-hmm. that's the good news that yeah, you know spend john is is yeah that's that's kind of what we want <laughs> <laughs> and i think this is the same as no reply too in that for me i live for both of these songs when paul comes in and that's not to say that you know because i love paul it's just that paul both songs brings this shot of adrenaline energy with his yeah. harmonies that I think takes them both to the next level. She's made me sad. I still love her. If I find her, I'll be glad. I still love her. I don't want to spoil the body, so I'll go. 
and you know, mm-hmm. and I fully compliment John on creating these great songs. Like I love the actual songs, but I do think that Paul does take both to the level that makes them super exciting. It does it well. Same as with I want to tell you when when Paul comes in, it just it just elevates the. It, it, it's just a great arrangement choice as well. You know, you, the song's doing a certain thing and then you need to introduce another element to it. So you bring in Paul, you know, from <laughs> yeah, the subs yeah. bench to, uh, yeah, yeah, to yeah, do yeah. a harmony or, or whatever. And um, it just works fantastically every time. And in, in this particular song, when that bridge comes in, it's just, the thing just takes off. I feel like Paul doesn't get enough credit for being um, such an incredible harmony singer. As, as a sideman generally, like throughout that catalogue, um, the you know the the way he, he he contributes to other people's songs, the way he lifts other the way he comes up with parts, um, you know, for all the talk of him looking down on George, you know, the, the contributions he made to George's songs, be it I want to tell you or something, you know, the baseline yeah. on something or um, what's another good example? Um, oh, uh, you know, know while, while my while guitar my... gently weeps, yes. the, well, yes. the piano line on that, the harmony on that, harmonies. Amazing. You, you know, he always sought to make things better. And I think in doing that, sometimes he probably pissed people off because, you know, he was just so good at making things better. <laughs> like, Fuck off, yeah, Paul. yeah. There must have been a tension. Like, I, you know, George talked about that, that he, you know, there's nobody else you'd want more on your side mm. than Paul. You know, when he, there was some kind of, <laughs> of course, with George, it was like a backhanded insult at the same time. Like, you'd have to do 50 Paul songs before, but there's yeah. nobody else you'd want on your side. I'm paraphrasing. But that's a good point, you know, for all the criticisms of, of you know, people saying that, Paul wasn't respectful. When they turned to George's songs, Paul was respectful in that he yeah. brought his best. Absolutely. He never phoned in any contribution on, on any of the other guys' songs, really. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, wonderful choice. Oh, the next song is my choice. Okay. <laughs> so um, I chose If I Take You Home Tonight. believe around the time of Kisses on the Bottom and it was recorded by Diana Krall. It was worked on for that album but it ended up on the cutting room floor and Mm -hmm. so uh, Diana who had worked on it with Paul when she was putting out her album Wallflower she said this is the quote from her she said uh, I worked with Paul McCartney on Kisses on the Bottom he wrote two new songs for the album My Valentine was one and then the other song that didn't fit the record actually he wrote three there's another one Only Our Hearts And she said, I still had a copy of the music and I asked him if it was okay if I did the song for my record. And he said, sure. 
So we recorded that and it came out just gorgeous. It's a new Paul McCartney song that's never been recorded that I'm pretty honored to have. And I think she does an exquisite job of this, yeah. you know, like just perfect. In some ways, I love having Diana's voice on this because it's still so strong. Although I would really like to hear Paul's version of it. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah, but um, I love it for a few reasons. Because I think it's such a beautifully written song. I, I think her production of it is amazing. Um, I love it that this is Paul in 2011-ish writing such, I mean, he's still writing such incredible songs, but I just love that, that, you know, that still so inspired. And I think, like, I think all three of the songs that he wrote for this album are spectacular. So he, mm. he must have been um, inspired by Nancy, because this is around the time when they, they got married. And I, and I find it interesting that the songs that he writes for Nancy are a little bit less conflicted. Like these are kind of intensely romantic songs, you mm. know. It, do, it doesn't have the angst of chaos. No, like hand um, in hand is another example, I guess, from yes. the age of station. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one would hope at this stage that there wouldn't be angst because this is before they got married. So mm. you know, but what I think is so interesting about this song is that it's basically a song of seduction that is it's sung directly to its target. And you don't get that very often with Paul. And when you listen to the song, it was kind of illuminating to me. It was like, first of all, damn, Paul works incredibly hard to seduce somebody. You know, all the <laughs> things that he promises on this song. I was like, ooh, Paul, yes, you could take me home. Because <laughs> if you look at it, he says, um, if I take you home tonight, I will think of songs to sing to you, music filled with joy and light if I take you home. And if you let me take your hand, there are places I could bring you to. a notorious workaholic and I just love the fact that this is not Paul saying oh baby I want you I want your you know whatever it's it's I will make you feel good mm. and you know so he's seducing by saying these are the things that I will do for you and and um, I, I find it very very persuasive um, <laughs> and and also I think it straddles the line of being very sexy and at the same time romantic you know and um i think paul probably of the beatles would have been the 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 best seducer i mean i think he's got this this reputation but i i think in the wooing that's not to say he's the best partner or anything like that it's just i think he was the, the best at seducing people and i remember reading in larry kane's book he says, uh, and I, this is a truncated quote, but I'm just going to read this quote. He said, Paul was a charming boy, made himself a mesmerizing and seductive sex symbol through a sly demeanor, a cutesy smile and hips that could move, which, which are Larry's words. Okay. And then he says, as I can tell you from witnessing it, Paul was artfully creating a winning combination with women, a personal presence accompanied by the most powerful force of seduction. Paul talked to girls. 
and later young women with an intense seriousness. His words and intimate conversation were powerfully accentuated by fleeting touch or the wink of an eye. And then he says, he's speaking from his perspective, it's a true pity that in our early years, so many of us failed to emulate Paul's real secret to the art of romance. He used words, words spoken softly and with respect. He was a natural conversationalist who was truly and sincerely in love with his prey, at least at that given moment. So, you know, and, and yeah, I, think I think I that... fancy him myself after that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I think that uh, there was a there was a few women who felt fell for this charm. And this song, like rarely you, you get the full force of Paul's seductiveness. And I think that this song does that for me anyways. Like, this guy was promising me some unimagined land and bring me to places I'd never seen. I'd be like, well, okay. I think that this is this is a, a beautiful, beautiful song. And there is one other section in this that is a little bit more vulnerable. He he talks about like if I tell you how I feel, would you be afraid and run away if, if I say my name is real? runs through a lot of early Beatles music. And I don't know if this is a Northern guy thing or if this is just a person thing, this real fear of telling somebody something and then running away, you know, this idea of would you run and hide, mm. you know? And so uh, I just think it's an exquisite song and, and I wish more people knew about it. Yeah, well, I have to admit I didn't. Uh, I'll probably have my McCartney fan credentials revoked <laughs> now. That, but yeah, I hadn't, I, when I saw it, your list, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, if I take you home tonight, what's that? And then so obviously looked it up and was like, oh, okay. And and it, so this was totally new to me. And yeah, yeah it's it's gorgeous. It, it, Diana Krall's performance is fantastic. I'm, I think she might be the right person to sing it, although I'd love to hear Paul do it. Mm-hmm. She brings something out in it. Um, she does. A certain sultriness and mm-hmm. a certain seductiveness that maybe Paul, certainly Paul, it is, you know, advanced years might struggle to to get across now you you know um, i agree and she does this i don't know there's her uh her voice has kind of more body to it i guess than paul's like but on that that um kisses on the bottom album paul's very much um was using his kind of head voice a lot he's singing in a very quiet sort of husky Mm -hmm, head mm -hmm, voice mm -hmm. whereas she sings this this sits differently for for her in terms of where she's comfortable or and it just gives something to the melody that maybe Paul singing it wouldn't. I don't know if that's maybe why he didn't end up doing it himself, or or maybe he didn't feel he could do it quite do it justice, or or what. But yeah, it's, it's a gorgeous uh, song. It faintly reminds me of that song he did for Peggy Lee, uh, just in terms of the mood. Let's love. Yeah, let's love. Yeah, mm, interesting. Um, which I think is one of the the, the great uh, relatively undiscovered Paul songs. Well- well, I have this, I have this pet theory that Paul gives away uh, sometimes songs that are meaningful to him or very deeply personal. Mm. And maybe it's because they're so personal that he can't sing them properly or can't quite go to that space or, you know, or I, I'm not sure why. I, I find that a lot of 
songs that I think are deeply personal end up as B-sides or he gives them away. I think with this one, this one just got cut. So maybe it was just that he couldn't capture. Like, um, yeah. I think a late 70s Paul could yes. have captured, you know, like letting go type yeah. voiced Paul. Yeah. I think where, where it sits yeah. in, his, in his range maybe just wasn't right. Because I was trying to imagine him singing it as I listened to Diana sing it. Yeah. And I just... No, I, no, she sounds, I think, better than he would sound. Um, yes. And where it sits in her range just gives it a, a more conviction, I think, than than he would have doing it. Well, I think you're right, because it's, it's, it's a seduction, and you hear that. And Paul, in his more fragile voice, maybe that's not the right tone. And it's yeah. when I hear her, I hear her, but I also hear Paul, because yeah, it's there's, his, there's I know a- it's his... Yeah, yeah, there's a slight masculine quality almost to, there to is. her voice on it, I would say, yeah. Side yeah. on what you think. No, it was um it was new to me as well. And I think you're right that um passing the song on to someone else who could do it justice in a different way was probably a smart idea because certainly vocally around that time, around the time of Kisses on the Bottom, he was moving into another space vocally, I think, mm-hmm, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. After all these decades of screaming his lungs out at concerts <laughs> around the world. Mm-hmm. I think we finally realized that he was becoming an older person now mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, his voice was going to change with it. And so it was probably a smart move. But it made me think of, um, speaking of, you know, songs that didn't make the cut and that sort of thing, it made me think of his New York City song, which we mm. brought up. Oh, yeah. We brought up to him in person. Yeah. And he and he said at the time that he actually put that forward for Kisses on the Bottom. Interesting. That, which he played on the on the Parkinson show. Yeah. Over oh, I forgot. Yeah. yeah. And um, Tommy LePuma knocked it back, apparently. The producer said that, I don't think so. So yeah. he sort of let it die. But I always really liked that. I thought that was quite a nice, spirited, kind of uh, very typical McCartney, New York kind of song, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's a lovely track, that. But no, I, I love his voice on that Kisses on the Bottom album. I like him embracing that sort of slightly husky, uh, yeah. you know, um, varnished with age kind of uh, yeah. voice. I mean, some people... I don't know. Seem to get a bit annoyed with Paul for because he's gotten older. I've, I I've know. actually heard people criticising old man Paul's voice. I'm like, he's an old man. How do you expect <laughs> him to sound? He can't pretend to sound any other way. And I personally, I like it when you know uh, older rock stars, like embrace that the age in their voice, you know, and don't sort of shy away from it. I can't. And again, it gives a certain vulnerability. I think. Yeah, I agree. And someday maybe we will hear this song, you know, his version of it. And I think maybe this would have been intriguing with his older voice. You know, this I I commend Paul for bringing sex to, you know, to his songs these days. So, (laughs) you know what I mean? So I'd like to hear his version. But I think when people react to Paul's old man, it's just a little bit of heartbreak because his voice, it's hard to, to not hear his beautiful younger voice, you know. Yeah, but we, I mean, we, but we have that, you know. We've got yeah, all those we records. Do. We do. We um, do. You're right. And, and I, I, I don't know. I just, I enjoy old Paul's voice. It's in its own way. It's, it's I got, it's got its own charm. Yeah. All right. Well, onwards, Simon. This is your song, and it is "Arrow Through Me." i 
so obviously this is a Wings track, late 70s, 79 I think, on uh, Back to the Egg. Mm-hmm. This is just a mystery I don't want to solve, this song. It's just, <laughs> I love just being absorbed into this world that he creates on this track and just being there and not sort of knowing the answers. Because <laughs> it's, I guess, by that point, synthesizers had taken hold a bit more and he sort of experiments with different textures on this and creates this incredibly atmospheric feeling over the top of this extremely funky kind of groove Mm -hmm. Um, and and of course it all hangs on this slightly odd phrase if you'd have taken an arrow and run it right through me which is a a strange thing I guess it's a reference to like Cupid's arrow yeah but it also sounds a bit Robin Hood to me as well (laughs) Um, but like it's it's just a fascinating piece like the I mean if we stay on the lyrics you know lines like you wouldn't have found a more down hero if you just started with nothing and counted to zero. I mean, that's just a, absolutely, well, it's baffling at first, but then when you think about it, it's just a really incredible line. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he gets some, he gets a lot of stick for some of his lyrics, doesn't he? But mm-hmm. I think in this case, you know, that's just pure gold. That's pure mm-hmm. McCartney gold, that line. That's a great line. Um, it's also and, unusual for Paul to position himself as a down hero, you know, like nobody thinks of him that way, you know? Yeah. Well, I guess he, uh, where he was at in that moment, perhaps mm-hmm. um, that would be a, a valid assessment, but um, obviously the average person doesn't think of someone like Paul McCartney as ever being a, you know, a, a down person or running mm-hmm. at rock bottom. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I guess everybody has those moments, don't they? Especially if you've got the weight of the pressure of all the, uh, mm. the the things that he was dealing with at the time. But sonically, I just think it's so interesting. You've got that kind of clavinet style sound, which he's using. It's kind of like synth bass almost. And then there's that very high kind of whistle that happens in there, sort mm-hmm. of randomly pops up. Mm-hmm. And the, the production choices like that, it's insane kind of reverb tail that they add on certain words like on zero it just echoes out Um, that brass section pops up in the middle like the Duke Ellington Orchestra just rolled into town. I love that. That's one of my favourite <laughs> moments on any any Paul song. That. Incredible. And it's it's not very Paul-like, I don't think. it's Well, I suppose you've got some some precedent songs like Got To Get You Into My Life or something like that, I suppose, would, would hark back to that kind of groove. But, I mean, it's just unbelievable the way that's performed uh, and how that feels against the time signature. There's there's some, some moments that make it mm. feel quite odd. But yeah, the, the BVs, that shuffly kind of vibe, just Paul being Paul, basically. That's why I think it doesn't get enough credit, is that it's it's kind of bizarre, but I love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. No, same. Great. That's one of my favourite Paul solo tracks, this one. Uh, I'd be interested to, to know kind of how it was put together, because you can't really hear wings on it. it it's, it's, it's only it's two pretty- of them. Yeah, it's the. I think Steve Harley must be yep. beyond the drums and, yeah. and and Paul basically because it's all keyboards, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, it's all keyboards. There's no no other voices on there. You've got the brass, obviously, which I think was his um, his brass section from Wings Over America, like Howie Casey and those guys, yeah. uh, who do. Uh, oh God, I love that brass riff so much. I can't believe that hasn't been. I mean, it might have been sampled 
but not not to my knowledge. It's uh, just so muscular, it's isn't so it? So funky. Oh yeah, it's just one of the probably the funkiest moments on a Paul <laughs> track that I would yeah. say funkier than it. You know, obviously he went down a very explicitly funky route with um, uh, oh what song? The song with Stevie Wonder. Oh, what's um, that? What's that you're that doing? doing? Yeah. yeah. Which I didn't think kind of came off quite so well. This one no. is—he's not trying so hard, and it—but it's just—it's such a groovy song. It's great. Um, I love the video as well because he made like a few videos for that That's album, right. didn't yes, he? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's them all on synths. It's like Paul mm-hmm. on synth, Linda, even Lawrence mm-hmm. Juba, mm-hmm. and is on a synth. Then he's on a synth. It's like a band of synths and Steve Holly. Uh, I love that and. Yeah, it's just it, it maybe is a little bit of a precursor to just his his experiments on McCartney too as well because it's it's pretty much him and a drummer, isn't it? Um, you know, there's no much not much band involvement, so it's maybe pointing the way a little bit to what he was about to do with um, McCartney too, just go, go completely solo. But mm. uh, there's a great version of this song done recently. Um, oh God, I can't even think. Of it. Well, the, the singer is Madison Cunningham. Uh, it's on YouTube. I, I can't remember that. There's a series of, of of these videos. I think it's the guy from Pomplamoose and, uh, and a few Conte. other people. Yeah, and they reinterpret uh, the old songs. And they chose Arrow Through Me for um, for one of these things, and they got this singer Madison Cunningham to sing. And it's a f- fantastic version of the track. I don't know if Paul's heard it, but I think Paul would dig it. Um, That's interesting because yeah. this one is such a unusual in, in in Paul's repertoire in that it's so much about atmosphere and and mm. vibe you know that I almost don't know if I'd like it redone because it, it's so cool and sultry and it's you know it's it's I sort of slinky and you know it's sexy actually like you <laughs> yeah. feel like I can picture Paul three in the morning high or you know it's there's something very smoky and slithery about this song the way that it goes and 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 mm-hmm. it feels genuine like the, Paul feels like he's wounded in this song like you feel that there's something of of being like really hurt yeah by somebody that you really care for don't you think yeah. oh yeah it's it's legitimately soulful that that vocal yeah. like this yeah. I said those you know the is is runs on the word zero Especially yeah. the one at the end before the, the brass comes back in. I mean, that in particular is anyone would be any soul singer would be proud of that that run he yeah. does there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I know what you mean because I'm not a massive fan of all oh, people doing kind of clever, clever versions of. But this is it, it's genuinely. I'll find the link and send you the link. It's it's okay. a really really nice sure. version because it's it's kind of not a. Not many people have really tackled it. I don't think so. That's what makes it kind of quite interesting to me, anyway. I mean, this song is mm. just like a really cool song. You know, Paul's image is really so different than who he is as an artist. I think that there's such a, probably because Paul's repertoire is so big, but even though he's been uh, arrested multiple times and written a number of super sexy songs, it's like he sort of has has this squeaky clean image, you know, yeah. which I think actually isn't true. In, in the lyrics, he he said that eroticism was a driving force behind everything I wrote. And it's kind of like, 
you hear that in a lot of his songs, especially like in the seventies, there's the letting go, let me roll it to you yeah. dark room. Like these are all songs that are kind of like the other side of Paul. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I think, it, you know, John was very much hearts on his sleeve in his work. Paul, yeah. I think you can learn about him in, in through his work. It's just not writ as large or as obviously as it is in John's work. But I think, you know, beneath the surface of a lot of Paul's stuff, you learn about the man. You know, he's That's just right. not, he's not prone to just pouring his heart out in the, the way that John did. That's right. And so this, this informs me that Paul does feel deeply, does feel wounded, does sometimes feel very down. Like there's a certain yearning in this. I don't know. Something, mm. something, probably a yearning for the person that wounded or whatever yeah. wounded Paul. Yeah. No, it's, it's just, um, Fabulous track from a, from a very underrated record in general, I would say, Back to the Egg. I don't, I don't even think Paul is very keen on that, but, I, but um, from what I've canvassed from other Paul and Wings fans, it's very well regarded, that record in general. Well, what does Paul like? I mean, like, which, yeah. so, other than Band on the Run. He's not often the best, um, the best judge, no. I think, of his own. But who is? A lot of people would say the same. They're not the best judge of their own work. But um, I'm hoping that that's the next in the... Uh, in the archive collection, that all yeah. London town. I'd, I'd like to um, like them to be reissued at some point. All right, onwards. Okay, so uh, Brian, the next song is yours, and it is because. Yeah, this for me is uh, has become one of my, I would say, Desert Island Beatle tracks. Um, it never used to be because I don't think it's as obvious as some other songs, but just mm-hmm. over the, the years, just the, the, the longer I'm a Beatles fan, um, the more that song, the significance that song takes on for me. Um, and I don't know what I, I can't say specifically why. I, I guess it's just a lot to do with just the sound, mm-hmm. the harm, those multi-layered harmonies, um, and it's almost this is the song that if you know if one of those idiots oh what's so special about the Beatles? Beatles were overrated, bloody blah, blah. If if someone was to say, oh what you know well what's so special? I'll, I'll play them this track and say mm. okay well try this on for size. Because I think still to this day, as as big as the Beatles are, as popular as they are, as well regarded as they are, there are still people who think they're the guys with the mop top wigs going, woo, you know. And, um, I, I do. I think they, they're just locked in certain people's minds as a certain kind of thing and a certain kind of sound. You know, I, there is a term Beatlesque, but Beatlesque could could really actually apply to any sort yeah. of period so within genres, the yeah. Beatles. Yeah. yeah. Um, but some people think of that. Maybe some other people think of them. 
with moustaches and you know uh, yeah. doing a day in life or whatever. But this to me is like, how many bands <laughs> are capable of, of yes. conjuring something like this, of making this sound? And I yeah. don't think there are many. You know, this this it's songs like this that set them apart as much as. Um, Day in the Life, I Am the Walrus, or any of the, 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 the great achievements, Strawberry Fields. Um, it's just, uh, it just stops you in your tracks every time you hear it. It's, um, uh, yeah. I think anybody that you have to convince that the Beatles are great, they don't even deserve to hear this song. <laughs> well, that's that's true. Sometimes I, I feel that way about, yeah, I, I do think people who dismiss certain elements yeah. of the Beatles, I think I said this in part one, maybe even, but um you know, if you dismiss a certain type of Beatles song or or, yeah. or style that they attack, they tackled, then do you even get to call yourself a Beatles fan? No, because what no. makes them so great is that they just didn't, they had no compunction about doing something like this or doing something like Yellow Submarine or doing yeah. whatever, Ellen Rigby or whatever. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's so simple in its own way. There's, there's you know the arrangements. That was the, it's such a tasteful arrangement. There's no Ringo on this. Oh, so tasteful. Um, you know, you've got those layered vocals. You have got the the blend of the harpsichord with the mm-hmm. uh, the, the Moog synth, mm-hmm. which um, again they do. They just had such great taste and mm-hmm. the use of the of the Moog on throughout Abbey Road. Actually, the textures that they use it for is just so great. You know, on Here Comes the Sun or mm-hmm. or this. Um, and I think it was George who played the Moog on this one, wasn't it? Is it George on this? I think it's George, yeah. And I think and just, um, yeah, the, the and even the chord. the work they had to put in to get it to work. <laughs> I think the Moog synth at this point is, you know, because it was just just this behemoth of an instrument yeah, yeah, that they yeah. had to take. Wow, it was like a, a, a switch, an old fashioned switchboard. <laughs> you know, you're taking cables out and putting them back in, and it's just gorgeous. I mean, I mean the a cappella version on. Anthology three is just something to behold as well. Um, I think the vocals were triple tracked, so it's it's John mm-hmm, Paul mm-hmm, and George yeah, times mm-hmm. three. Incredible. Um, and uh, lyrically, it's a little bit. See, I I, I mean Ian McDonald, who I've mentioned before on this uh, podcast, was a bit sniffy about this song, which I, I went back to his entry for this song earlier yeah. on and. He was kind of sniffy about the lyrics. Well, he's sniffy about a lot. He's sniffy about a lot. And I kind of, well, I read that. I kind of couldn't believe. I was like, really? You don't like this? And uh, there's one quote I had to pull from it, which was, um, well, how did he describe it? He described it as having an icy grandeur, which Mm -hmm. fails to engage the emotions. (laughs) 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 I'm like, what was it? I mean, God bless the guy. You know, he had had a sad end. and, and, And you read a line like that and you think, Man, you know, how can you not hear the beauty in this? Yeah. Um, I actually, I did think that there was a a lack of emotional heart in this song. Like, okay. it's, it's extraordinarily beautiful, but it's unresolved. And I found it hard to emotionally connect with this. But I don't think that that's the point for this one. I think it is, like you said, it's hard to explain because it's, a soundscape. This is one that, you know, I did a two-part episode on Abbey Road and this this plays a lot throughout the episode and I came to obsessively love it because as a soundscape it's so fascinating. Yeah. You know? That's it. It's 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 the 
It's the emotion it creates for me personally. It's just, it's just it, the the sound of it. It's not yet the words are, are almost, you know, if you if you just took the words in isolation, they're almost yeah. kind of they could be perceived as sort of silly word wordplay because the world is round. It turns me on, just nakedly like that. Mm-hmm. It's silly hearing those voices uh, sing those words. They become yes. they elevate the words to something which maybe then they're just not they're not on paper. But in their hands or in their on in their voices, they become something almost profound. Yes, and that's entirely down to yes. how how beautifully they sing. Um, the blend of their voice—I don't think they ever blended so well in any other song. To to be quite, there's, there's, there's many great examples of Beatles harmonies, but no better example than than this. They just—I I think maybe contextually, because they were, there were other issues going on in the background of making out in terms of business and, and all that sort of stuff, Alan Klein and all that, the fact that they could still get around the mic and produce this sound, maybe that's playing into how, how emotional I get when I hear this song because it's like, wow, in spite of the kind of being at loggerheads and yeah, um, a lot of shit going on in the background. As Paul said, as Paul said in the anthology, when they, when they got together to, to, do, to play, they sounded good. You know, they just John- were able to put that aside. Yeah, and John's writing songs for them to, you know, he wants these harmonies on his songs. It's, you know, I don't believe that they planned, they necessarily planned Abbey Road to be their last album. No, you know, there I, th- was, I think there was... it, that's, yeah, been pretty much put to bed now because yes, there's that that's... tape of the meeting where they're talking about what to do on the next record. That was like September 69, wasn't it, or yeah, something? I did and, a um... whole three-hour episode on right. that one. So if oh, anybody wants to either. listen, oh, it's very good. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'll I check it out definitely. So. But I would say they they definitely didn't intend this to be the last one. It, it you know it wound up being a fitting kind of epitaph. But um, no, I think they they didn't um, plan for it to be the last. But and just in, in terms of the actual writing, I think wasn't it um, John inspired by Yoko playing Moonlight Sonata? Yeah, Yoko's yeah, a, yeah. and he said he asked her to play the chords backwards. And that's basically what that song is. I'm not sure if that's strictly it's true. Not. If you were to, no, I didn't think it was. <laughs> but um, that was what that was the the jumping off point for the song. Basically, you know, John being yeah. being the songwriter, he wasn't being you know yes. so attuned yes. to things and having his antennae up. He, he heard Yoko doing something, and that sort of brought about this song. Um, and yeah, I just what can I say? It's just uh, also I think I mean it's, it's it in and of itself. I love it. But the the transition from this to the opening of "You Never Give Me Your Money" oh my god, so kills me every every time. I can't that first major seven, minor seventh chord of uh, "You Never Give Me Your Money" after that final harmony of "Because" is just well, it actually just resolves it, doesn't it? It does. Mm-hmm. You know, it's. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a deliberate move in that that sort of diminished kind of fade out on the vocal actually leads into a resolution on the next song, which. Yeah, but, but I like if you play it in isolation, it has that unresolved. I like the unresolvedness of it in isolation, yes. but on the record, the sequencing is just um, so clever. But you know what? The unresolved nature of it is interesting, actually, I think. Like, John has a number of unresolved songs. Like, I Want You, She's So Heavy is unresolved. Um, Glass Onion is unresolved. And personally, I think it's because John is unresolved. I, I <laughs> yeah. think in, in life, I just think he's he's unsure about where he's going or what they're doing or, and there's an issue. And, you know, 
this song is interesting because like you said, it sounds profound, but it's kind of just a riddle, you know, and it's kind, he's kind mm. of saying that because is just because it is, you know, but there is no, he doesn't give an answer. It's just kind yeah. of like, it's the way of the world. And it, it, it sounds spiritual almost, but I mm-hmm. think that John doesn't have, doesn't know the answer. And to me, that's a real, that's the real tension between John and Paul on this album and this time and this year is that I think Paul, I think he takes John and John's perspective too seriously and starts to wrap up like, you know, okay, I'm going to conclude this because, you know, mm. if you look at Paul's written the end and you, yeah. you know, this long suite is that whether or not they plan this to be their end, I think Paul is sort of coming to terms with potentially the end of the Beatles, even let it be is like, you know, like, okay. Yeah. There's something like valedictory about some of those songs, isn't there? Yeah. Well, I don't mean, it's it's sort of like he is just letting things be and he's not fighting it anymore, Mm. you know? And so you see this kind of conclusion from Paul's perspective, whereas John, I don't think is giving in. I think for all the story about John being checked out, I don't think he is. I just think he's very unresolved, and I hear that in his music. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good observation, yeah. Simon, do you have any thoughts, additional thoughts on this? No, not really. I think it's all been said. It's just it's a beautiful piece of music, isn't it? You know, it's They're trying to align the planets with this one, I think. And, I guess, uh, that's what I kind it, of see. I see, it, like, the solar system when I hear this song. I see yeah, the Earth it, well, it has, that, it has that quality, and I think that's perhaps why it doesn't feel like it's one of John's sort of typically emotional pieces is that it's actually maybe got a loftier goal almost. Like it's it's achieving something that isn't just the how is John feeling. It's more yes, about yes. it's more about um uh, maybe a bigger message. I don't know. I think of it as a cloud. So we all think of it in the sky. Yeah, and it yeah. kind of is just it's the atmosphere, it kind of almost spiritual about it. But I think the lyric I guess maybe it could be deep in that it's saying like, sometimes we don't know the answer. Sometimes Mm. the world turns, you know, maybe that's why it's unresolved. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. But you know, Paul songs, Hey Jude typically are reassuring. And this one is Mm. kind of like, there is no answer, you know? Yeah. I kind of find that oddly reassuring. I I like, as I say, I, I enjoy that unresolved quality to the song. Um, I, I don't find that particularly unsettling. Yeah, kind of, oh, no, it's like to, to be continued. Uh, yes. you know, it's like there's an ellipsis at the end of the song. I think you can take comfort in the fact that you don't know the answers. Yeah, yeah. that's you that's know, exactly that's... right. That's I think that's how I think of that song. And again, it, you know, yeah, the lyrics taken just in and of themselves could be perceived as a bit trite or a bit silly almost, but but combined with the and that's the the beauty of songwriting. You can take. Um, you know, you can take a certain set of words, set them to a particular musical backing, and it just becomes another thing, this other entity um, that you cut, this mysterious thing that you can't quite explain why it affects you so much. You know, is that um, is that Paul doing the fluttery vocal? I think that's him doing that. Yeah, the part that moves more again, kind of yeah, it's, yeah, it's another yeah. sort of melisma, really, isn't it? They're they're staying on the note, and he's oh, fluttering so around. Makes me cry 
Yeah, it's a great sound. Okay, well done, Brian, and well done, John. Just a beautiful, beautiful <laughs> Yeah, John song. should get all the credits. I can't take any credit for that one. <laughs> Good choice, Brian. Great song, John. Okay. Back then, long time ago, when grass was green. So the next song is When We Was Fab. Yeah, so this is um, George in the sort of getting on for the late 80s, 87, Cloud9, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. um, and this is so quite a bit of time's passed, I suppose, for having a song that sort of references the Beatles. Um, it's quite a knowing song, isn't it, in terms mm -hmm. of the references to income tax and that sort of yeah, thing, yeah, which yeah. obviously was a preoccupation of George's, <laughs> I think. <laughs> um, and it's done, the whole thing's done with a kind of Scouse grammar, isn't it? You know, when we was fab is, is something you'd probably hear in Liverpool. Mm. And also they get the word gear in there. Yeah, it's kind of a, mm -hmm. a northern thing to say when something was good. So, yeah, it was... Uh, co-written and co-produced with Jeff Lynn and you can definitely hear Jeff's kind of Beatlesque approaches to everything on this um, which is quite interesting isn't it if you think about the, the sort of replicating that Beatles sound but doing it in a kind of a, a knowing way mm -hmm. many years later and having mm -hmm. a Beetle on it. I think Ringo played drums on this, didn't he? Yeah, unmistakably, that's Ringo. Yeah. yeah. So, so you've got you've got sort of genuine Beatles mixed with kind mm -hmm. of Jeff's kind of love for the Beatles and it, it just creates a fabulous song. Um, it's quite a dense production. They're, they're definitely going for some of the hallmarks of the Beatles, timpani, the strings, those sort of phased out vocals and there's reversed sounds in there as well. Yes. And Real psychedelic. Yeah. yeah, well, they get the sitar in there as well, don't they? Yeah, I mean, yeah, they, yeah. They, they do kind of create a parody of the Beatles while also being New George material, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is it's great. You know, it's a lesson, really, I think, this song, in songwriting and in record-making. It's just an incredible production. If you study how it's put together, how it sounds, where the parts are arranged to appear, you know, the, the backing vocals and the, the sort of repetitive backing vocals that will end in, in fab or in gear. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... The ear candy. Exactly. It's packed with ear candy. And I also love that little piano motif, um, which yeah, is like the, great. Dun, 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 you know, which we actually asked Jeff Lynn about when we interviewed him. And I think he said he came up with that, didn't he, Bry? I think he said it was his, yeah. Didn't he? Yeah. They wrote it together, didn't he, him and George um, in Hawaii? I think right. he said. <laughs> of course it was yeah. Hawaii. Of course, yeah. yes. Probably another song written on a yacht. I don't Sounds know. fabulous. I know. They're always on a yacht or in Hawaii. Or... Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't think it gets enough credits overall. I mean, it, it got to number 25 in the charts in the UK and 23 in the States. So it's not unknown. Um, but out of the sort of self-reverential post-Beatles songs, this is probably up there with the best of them, I suppose. Mm. Um, 
trying to think what other examples there would be. Maybe Here Today or something like that is a good kind of reference to the Beatles. It's interesting that George always felt a little bit outside of the Beatles. You know, he talks about this in the... Uh, in the 70s when he's interviews, he said that he felt like he was both in the Beatles and watching the Beatles, like just one step outside of them. And he talks about the fact that he felt like John and Paul were the stars and he was just a little bit separate from them. And I spoke with Pete Pafides and he commented that George is the one that writes about them a couple of times, you know? It's kind of like it's a phenomenon that maybe George because he's a little bit removed, can write about and observe, whereas Paul is in the middle. Like, Paul is in the center. Like, it's just too, it's him, you know? I feel like maybe it's too close to Paul to have that separate perspective. I see this partly as George trying to process the Beatles' Mm. experience, too, and to me, this song, like this was this was one of the ones I would have talked about too, because A, I absolutely love it. I love the fact that it's so psychedelic. I think it references I Am the Walrus and um, Glass Onion and, you know, you, you, sort of all their 67 work, which is so interesting, or 66, 67, 68. Um, but it's both nostalgic. It's a bit of a march. Like you get, like, like Last Onion, it's got a bunch of like, almost in my mind, visuals of references, mm. you know, cataloging kind of this and that and the, the march ahead of the Beatles. There's something very nostalgic, but being George, I find there's something bittersweet to it too. Definitely, yeah, yeah. You know, like, I, and I think that's his experience is there's something that he loved and something kind of painful about the, the Beatles yeah. experience. Yeah, I think it captures that perfectly, even though the title is quite optimistic, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I know what you're saying, that because of all the elements in there, you do get the sense that this is kind of a a mixed experience. It's not just him saying, oh, yeah, we were great. All of those underlying emotions are in there in the kind of chaos of the track, Yeah, um, which is really interesting. I think the video kind of replicated a bit of that as well. I remember it being very, I haven't watched it in a long time, but I remember it being very busy and kind of like a collage of stuff happening, you know. Can you imagine yeah. that? That would have been their experience. Can you imagine the Beatles experience? Oh my God. Talking about chaos of creativity and insanity, you know? Yeah. No, I think that's a great, another great observation. It's him trying to uh, sort of uh, reflecting and trying to process everything that happened to them in the space of a, the three-minute song, um, <laughs> and again, it, it like I want to tell you, I guess you, you you get different sides of George's personality in the lyric. There's there's, there's some cynicism in there. There's some yeah. genuine, I think. Uh, there's there's like sweetness. You feel that he is yes. he, he is yes. in a sense looking back fondly. Yes. Um, there's humor in there. You know, like yes. fab like this pullover you yeah, sent yeah. to me. <laughs> I love that line. Yeah, then yeah. you've got the sort of more poignant lines like the microscopes that magnified the tears. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's a, quite a complicated lyric, but dressed up like in this sort of, um, what's the word? Uh, I can't pastiche, even think of the word. Like, uh, the word. Like, yeah. yeah, pastiche, but just this um, irresistible uh, musical package. Mm-hmm. You know, that Jeff, it's one of Jeff Lynn's best. Maybe kind of. Yeah, yeah. It's one of Jeff's best productions, I think. I know people have quite divided on um, on Jeff Lynn's production style. You know, I'm I'm pro Jeff. This is a winner. 
This is yeah. yeah, and this is this is I think Jeff's sound put to its best use on this song. I can hear how some people yet, you know, the, the, the drum sound on Jeff Lynne's songs is sort of over, you know, um, tends to dominate things. But on this, I think because Ringo has such a, you can't dominate Ringo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Ringo's just, and, and in a lot of ways, Jeff's the drum sound on Jeff Lynne records is sort of aping Ringo's sound mm-hmm. in a certain. In a certain way. But this but, is the real um, Ringo. This is, but this the, is the real Ringo. Ringo. And just, you know, the way Ringo propels this song and his fills, those sorts of weird mm-hmm. sorts of, you know, where you almost, you almost think, oh, he's going to lose it. No, he's got it. He's, <laughs> you know, it's just those unique kind of wrong way around the kit um, Ringo fills towards the end, which start in weird places and kind of crossbar lines and things. And uh, It's kind of like a march. It's, it kind of gives this sense of time passing. Yeah, me. absolutely. Yeah, it's... Uh, um, yeah, no, this is another another favourite um, solo Beatles track to me. And yeah, it's, it's well known, but I don't think appreciated enough for the, the complexity in the in the lyrics. And I love the references in there, like uh, there's a Dylan reference in there, isn't it? It's all over now, baby blue. Yeah. Um, and then he meant, you really got a hold on me, which they covered on... Um, I'm with the Beatles. Well, I uh, think, I love that line. I think that could have been that could be a, a theme song for the Beatles because I think no matter what, they had a hold on each other. You know, yeah. Ringo talked about that in the early '70s. He's like, we were so possessive of each other, mm. and I think they did have a hold on each other. You know? Yeah, yeah, and it is, and there is that. It is, in spite of the obvious reservations in there, I get the sense that he's looking back fondly you know and he's taking all all, all of the the rougher parts with the the good bits and thinking wow you know we were great yeah um warts and all we were like fabulous and it's Paul it's George kind of you know staking his claim to part of that being part of that story yes yes yeah. and I love it I love this song I I do find it very conflicted and, you know, that's probably how George thinks of that time. It was conflicted. You know, there was so much good. Yeah, I but always then, got that sense from George. And, and I got it in Get Back as well that, uh, you know, for all that he's not necessarily having a great time in Twickenham and stuff, but there are moments when he's like, hang on a minute, we're the Beatles. Why can't we get back? You know, why can't we yeah. afford this? Why can't we do that? Yeah. He does have a sense of. We're great. We're we're these yeah. guys, you know. Why, why are we like not getting all this <laughs> proper recording equipment? So, yeah. Right. Why why is it that such and such can get these recording machines and we yes. can't with the Beatles? So he, he's got a he does he, even then he had a strong sense of who they were and their importance, I think, and their relevance. Almost, even almost in a way that Paul didn't, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think Paul was was always the biggest fan. Of the, of the <laughs> while he was in the Beatles, and he's he's still one of the biggest Beatles fans now. I think he, you know, uh, I think Beatles fans see themselves in <laughs> in Paul because um, he he gets it. He seems to be like, yeah, we were great, and um, he really embraces guess, it now. Shit yeah, hot little I'm, band. He's what? Yeah. Shit hot little band. Yeah, great little band. <laughs> you know what? I I never like that that saying like I get what he's saying it makes Paul feel like he's almost not in the Beatles when he says that because Mm. I think that what he's actually saying is that I recognize how good we were and I always did but that's different than being a fan and being a fan takes him outside of that and that sometimes pisses me off because I want Paul you know when Paul says things like I, you know, I feel lucky that I was in the Beatles. It's like, fuck off, 
Paul, you were the Beatle. <laughs> you are the Beatles. Like, you know what I mean? There's kind of a, a, I want him to own it more. Yeah. I, I th- well, that's it. I think, I think he's trying to not be too, I think it's a, uh, this is my theory. It's a bit of a Liverpool thing. Yeah. That, yeah. You know, he doesn't want to get too big or appear too big for his boots. Yeah. He's trying to sort of, okay, yeah, we were, we, we were a good little band, but let's yeah, not yeah. kind of go great. Yeah, I think Northern Liverpool he, thing he probably do. feels it would be distasteful to, to crow too much. That's, that's the I'm sense sure. I get from Paul, you know, I'm so sure. he's trying to keep a little bit of a lid on his own. I think he knows full well, he knows full well how great they were. He knows how good he is, but yes. he doesn't like to crow about it too much because it's not, and I think that's just part of being coming from where he's from, from a Liverpool family who were quick to put people in, you know, don't get too big for your boots yeah, yeah, now, put, you know. Yeah, yeah, put them in their place, yeah. I, yeah. I agree with that. I just think it doesn't play uh, well, you know, if he had said it once, but he says it all the time. He and does it, say, and, I was just going to say, sorry, Paul Paul DeNoyer, the, the music writer, I can't yeah. remember the term. He kind of created the term for that, that very quirk of Paul's or like you know the, the, the sort of the great little group the great little band the miniaturization. thing yeah yeah, yeah it, I can't remember it, it's in a, a book he actually um, yeah yeah compiled of interviews he did with Paul yeah. I can't remember conversations, he, with, conversations with McCartney or yeah something. or he, if it's not in the book he, he talked about it in a in an interview around the time but and he came up with a, a particular like term for it it's obviously it is it's a quirk of his it's, and it's become one of it's one of the things that when people sort of take the piss out of paul they, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. they they say you know along with you know uh you, you know and john said you won't know you won't you know it's the uh, best line in the song <laughs> it's one of the jukebox paul phrases it is now. it is the yeah. press play and get those yeah i mean I, i'm not a fan of that i understand why he does that but i i also don't think it's true Personally, I don't think it's true. John Lennon was such a massive fan. If you if you go deeply into John's interviews in mm-hmm. the 70s, nobody loved the Beatles more than John. Paul didn't love the Beatles more than John. John was, you know, he'd get sent the newest records and couldn't couldn't listen to them because he was so nervous and couldn't stand it mm-hmm. if they weren't perfect and was what was happy to be part of the Beatle Beatle Fests and collecting memorabilia. And I'm pretty sure Ringo's a huge fan of the Beatles too. Yeah. I think so, I think Paul I think he was maybe trying to get away from it for a time, you yes, know. And at some, yeah, at some point he just thought, no, okay, I'm gonna uh, probably around flowers and obviously he started playing Beatles songs in like in wing sets and things, but in terms of um, you know talking about them all on interviews and stuff, and uh, you know I think it was around flowers in the dirt. He you know he, he picked up the Hofton Island bass again, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, and, yeah, um, yeah. Sort of. Right. Um, even like referenced beat the Beatles in his videos and things like that. I think he started to sort of um, embrace them a bit more. I think that's an excellent point. It's a really important point that actually Paul went through a prolonged period when he wanted nothing to do with the Beatles. Apparently in the 70s, uh, fans would ask him to sign Beatles memorabilia. He didn't want to do it. I think it was just, it left a bitter taste in his his mouth for a long time. In fact, he has said that he was the one that did not want to get back together in the 70s. Eventually, he got past that, and I think it was a joy for him to re-embrace again and just kind of go like, wow, we were fantastic, you know? But he's sort of dealing with his own experience. And it's the same with the breakup, you know, and, and him talking about how depressed he was. I, I believe that he did go through a terrible period. 
But I also think he emphasizes this because he is counteracting his experience, which is being blamed for the breakup. I'm amazed now that there's so much, so much has been written. I'm amazed there's, there's, there's any real sort of conjecture on on who did what. You know, it's kind of based on the amount of literature available and and accounts of the time and stuff like that. You can kind of sort of see it was just no one person really brought it about and ended the band. It was just it, there seemed to be a lot of just it was poor communication. I think that. Yeah. Broke up the Beatles more than anyone, any one person. They couldn't yeah. get by that point. It was impossible for them to get together and just sit down and go, right, what are we doing next? And what you know, what what are people unhappy about? What they just couldn't do. And may I think they could have done more together, but they just couldn't get the together to communicate properly and figure out what they all wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got a thirty-hour uh, series yeah. on the breakup, so okay. clearly, it's I don't got- think it's easy. But I think the lack of communications is is true i mean my perspective is that they didn't mean to break up they didn't have to break up but because things spiraled and emotions got out of control and they couldn't communicate that things blew up but but that's it that's what happens when people stop talking and start you know they were always very straight and honest with each other and when they stopped sort of doing that and communicating with each other properly the wheels fell off you know there's this proof that 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 tape that that came out is is proof that they were going well on the next record you know yeah. John's saying I want George to have George to have as many songs as us and all so it's like so they were going to go into you know 1970 and make another record but it just yeah. wasn't to be yeah and Once, again yeah. you know I've got a whole episode on the divorce where John comes in and quits and we're talking about somebody who's on and off heroin at this time I yeah. don't necessarily think it should have been treated. You know, if John no. would have had better people around him, if they would have had better management, it would be like, let's let's reconsider this in a month, John. Because yeah. John starts to walk it back. And, but exactly. all seriously. In, yeah, John was impetuous by nature, wasn't he? Uh, yeah. He changed his mind with the wind, basically. So, um, yeah. But yeah. there you go. Emotional. We know he's emotional. <laughs> we know he says things he doesn't mean. And then, you know, we saw this theme of songs. They should have known, you know. Yeah. It's just that, like, maybe if a couple of years earlier that he could have said things like that and it would have, yeah, and they'll get past it exactly. at this point. Because of other factors, external factors and business things and client and all that stuff, it was just really hard to to get past those things at that point. Yeah. It's so funny, isn't it, when you watch something like Get Back and you realise just how underdeveloped the management structure was around incredible and they're just kind of sitting around trying to decide stuff and it's like you know if someone if they really are at a point where you know probably the most successful act in the world is about to break up you think there would be a management team in place who would say okay guys look let's all go to barbados for a month yes cool hours but come back (laughs) i mean you've got got your entire careers to develop this you don't really need to decide today you know but uh yeah they were they kind of rushed into a lot of uh decisions i think just because it was them just sitting around making those decisions. Oh, I think that's such a great, great point. Like even you look at Get Back when they're bringing their own equipment in. Like where was the team? <laughs> no, uh, it was Mal, yeah. basically. Mal was just Mal. looking at the drum kits. Yeah. yeah, but like where was the team? I think potentially, you know, as great as Brian was, maybe too much of the power rested in his hands. And, and I don't blame Brian because everything was new. You know, that they didn't mm-hmm. know to do these things, but you can just see how vulnerable they were. Well, if you think yeah. about an act these days, you know, like a major star and how it, the, the system the around infrastructure. them works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, unbelievable to think that they were just sort of having these arguments. Like they wouldn't even have 
have those conversations today. Right, right. They'd just be taken yeah. care of through the representatives and the right. guys. They have, yeah, they were having to go into Apple and have like business meetings about where <laughs> exactly. this money was going, what this, you know. How to pay? How to pay Billy Preston? Like, no, exactly. you don't, don't think about that stuff, guys. Yeah. Stuff they shouldn't have had to have dealt with. They they did have to deal with, and again, that just swamped them probably, and they just all thought, oh god, you know, yeah. just got too much in the end. Yeah. Yeah, we should have just locked them in the studio and left everything else to the management. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, thank you guys. That was wonderful. But yeah. um, but thank you so make, much. Make for... me sound coherent, please. <laughs> I think amazing. anyone's got that kind of time, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. My editing skills are only so good. Yeah. yeah. Um... It's, a, it's a big ask. <laughs> <laughs> this has been so great, so fun. Thank oh. you for your thoughts and. Um, uh, if you ever want to come back, please do. It was such a pleasure having you guys. Love to. Uh, thanks, thanks for having us. On. Thank you, guys. Take care. concludes our very first Hidden Gems and Unsung Masterpieces series. I'd like to thank my wonderful guests, Simon and Brian, for their thoughtful, brilliant analysis. Also, I asked Simon and Brian how they would divide their songs, and they said that the unsung masterpieces to them are No Reply, Dear Boy, Because, and When We Was Fab, and the rest fall into the Hidden Gems category. Let us know if you agree or disagree with our lists and categorization. And speaking of When We Was Fab, I have a few last host words on this song. Picking up from our discussion, as I mentioned, I thought Harrison was quite conflicted about the Beatles' experience, and that was reflected in the song. But that's not to say that he wasn't hugely invested in it. I think George's love and investment in the Beatles sometimes gets a little lost, and his perspective has been mischaracterized over the years, potentially as a result of Harrison's own shifting attitudes. But nevertheless, I think George's emotional tie to the Beatles is sometimes underestimated. After all, it was Harrison in the spring of 1970 who wrote a memo to his fellow Beatles asking them not to break up. And I quote, a flower on its own is pretty. A flower in a garden is beautiful. It was also Harrison who said in an interview in the spring of 1970, after the Paul Quits the Beatles fiasco, that I'll certainly try my best to do something with them again, you know. I mean, it's only a matter of accepting the situation as a compromise. I think it's very selfish that Beatles don't record together. Never mind the fact that all the compromise was supposed to come from one side, Harrison nevertheless wanted the Beatles to record together again. And later in that interview, he said that it was only a matter of John and Paul getting over their issues. George also said in December of 1969 that he would like to play live with the Beatles if it was possible. So clearly George had not taken John's comments as seriously as Paul had. 
And George's willingness to play with the Beatles did not end with his 1970 comments. In an interview with Men Only magazine in November 1978, George showed a willingness to reform with the Beatles, if it could be done reasonably. The interviewer, George Haddad, asked Harrison, which of the ex-Beatles would most like the Beatles to reunite? And Harrison said, personally, I'm not opposed to the idea if it's done through mutual agreement. And then he adds, but the pressure seems to be bigger than any of us. And when they talk of sums like 50 or 60 million, it's almost a farce. I know Paul's book for the next few years and John may have lost interest in the idea. Ringo and I are closest on it. We both feel it's not impossible, but it's highly unlikely if only because of the legal and business maze that would have to be resolved before the four of us set foot on stage together. As for one concert, one huge benefit from which genuinely deserving people would benefit. If that ever becomes possible, I'll go along with it, as long as there is a minimum of fuss. In this interview, George speaks kindly of Paul and John, and he does recognize the critical element of, Lennon -McCart of the Lennon-McCartney partnership. And again, he positions himself as both outside of the Beatles and within it. The interviewer, George Hassad, asked him, asks him, you and Paul McCartney were friends at the Liverpool Institute. You used to camp in the countryside. In short, you were close pals. Did you have any idea then that your friendship would lead to anything extraordinary? And George Harrison says, not at the time. We were just average boys with an interest in music. Each of us had a guitar, the prized possession of our lives. And any time we could, we'd fiddle around with them. Jumping further into George's comments, he says, from the start, I knew Paul had a knack for composing tunes and words to go with them. Nothing great, mind you, at that time. But I knew that he, more than I, could go far in music, in the music world, if he really applied himself. Thing is, we were both just beginning to see the world and our ambitions were somewhat blurry. There was the distraction of girls and applying ourselves to our work, as it were, was an unknown quantity. Then the interviewer, George Haddad, says, did you ever imagine that the two of you would be separated by the musical interest that first brought you together? And George Harrison says, I could never have imagined it. And then Haddad says, then your musical ambitions didn't really begin to take form until the two of you joined with John Lennon. George Harrison says, John and Paul were the spark that ignited the Beatles. Of course, we weren't the Beatles then and we didn't have Ringo, but that was the start. The air was filled with excitement. And even though we went through silly names like the Quarrymen Skiffle Group, the Moondogs, the Moonshiners and the Silver Beatles before evolving into that group, everyone grew to know and love. The Crucible was in 1957 when John and Paul became a duo. So at this time, George doesn't seem particularly bitter about the Beatles. And in fact, he's even willing to consider reforming if they could do it in a reasonable way. So it wasn't the case that George was over the Beatles in 1969. In fact, some of George's issues with Paul are not particularly pronounced at the time of the breakup. They seem to have become more pronounced later. And what the real source of those are, are a little unclear. I say all this because as with the breakup, things are a little bit more complicated than they seem. And all of this is background for this song, When We Was Fab, which of course reflects a deep love, nostalgia, and melancholy, which is perhaps most revealed in the lyric, Take You Away. Kudos to Jeff Lynne for teasing this fab song out of George, and kudos to George for making such a fantastic song. And by the way, he sounds fantastic also. Interestingly, it might have been Elvis Costello who did something similar for Paula this time. But that's another song and another story. So that's my host's perspective 
Thanks again for listening. I will be back very soon with more Get Back series episodes. If you think everything has been said about Get Back, well, think again, because I have some pretty fantastic episodes coming up. At least I think they are. Thanks again to Simon and Brian. If you are enjoying this podcast, please give it a shout out or leave it a five-star rating or review. And I have a new Patreon account. So if you'd like to contribute, please do. All contributions will go to the production of the show. Also, some of the, the performances that we discussed will be in the show notes for this episode. That's all for now. Until next time, take care. Bye. W.